Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Mustafa Sise. Mustafa is a research scientist at Facebook AI Research Lab, and we had the pleasure of meeting at uh, the recent NIPS event. And particularly, we hung out quite a bit at the Black and AI, uh, both the workshop and the dinner. Uh, Mustafa, it is great to reconnect with you. How are you doing? I'm great. How about you? Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, so the tradition here is for um, me to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in AI? Sure. So I'm Mustafa. I was born and raised in Senegal in West Africa. Uh, if you have never been there, you should. It's a fantastic country. Uh, just a little bit of ad. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I, I, I was born and raised there and, and I was uh, I did most of my education there. I went to the university, Gaston Berger, where I studied mathematics and physics. And it's during one of these courses that I really got interested into AI. It was an algorithmic course where we had a project. Uh, the task was to design an AI basically to uh, to solve the game of Awale, which is a, a strategic game, a bit a bit like checkers or or, or chess, uh, but very popular okay. in West Africa. And uh, most of the systems that were designed by the students were, were based on uh, rule base. Like if you do this, if if then else rules, basically. So I was I really wanted to design a system that um, that learned from different games and and and. and learns to solve the game basically uh so that that's how i got into into ai so i started watching videos on youtube and and teaching myself uh some of some of the basic algorithms okay awesome awesome and so how did you uh how did you make your way from there to uh your current role at facebook ai research so so after that experience i i really enjoyed it and i kind of realized that this was what I wanted to do uh, for the rest of my life. I, would, I could contribute in this area. Uh, so I decided to, to go abroad uh, because there were no, not an advanced uh, course or degree in AI uh, in the university. So I went to France to study uh, for a master's. Okay. So I studied, I, I, I spent the first year uh, in Paris at the University mm-hmm. Pierre and Marie Curie. Then I, I spent the second year at the University of Montreal. Uh, then I came back to Paris to do a PhD there. Uh, and then uh, when I, after I graduated from my PhD, I did a one-year postdoc. And uh, after that postdoc, I came to, to Facebook AI Research. So it's been. And you're based in you're based in New York City, is that right? Actually, I'm based in Paris, even though I spent some time in New York. Sometimes, oh, okay. yeah, but I'm okay. I'm based in Paris, so we have a lab in Paris uh, okay. with uh, about thirty researchers and engineers. Oh, nice, yeah, nice. And so um, maybe we can start out by having you tell us a little bit about your research interests and the kind of things you're working on nowadays. Yeah, so I'm 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 interested uh, in AI and machine learning at large, but these days I spend most of my time working on on trust in AI. So by trust, I mean all the topics uh, pertaining to um, safety and security in AI, um, fairness and biases, 
and also interpretability. I think these are very important topics that are gaining some momentum now, but that have been overlooked for some time. And uh, it's it's very important that as a community, we focus on uh, um, building systems that can be trusted and that can be used um, uh, broadly, uh, to say. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's what I spend most of my time working on right now. Okay. Um, can you maybe give me some examples of your of recent research you've done in in these areas? Sure. So in the area of uh, security and safety, I have worked on uh, uh, understanding the topic of adversarial examples. So adversarial examples are examples that the model a model so an AI system uh, sees or hears or uh, depending on the modality but that makes the model behave in a completely uh, different way that it should behave, um, that, is, uh, that, that is in a completely unexpected way. So uh, these are malicious examples, and they, they tell us a lot about how, how, how the models that we are building right now are kind of not very well understood. So mm-hmm. I have done some work with colleagues in understanding uh, how these adversarial examples arise and how to generate them for speech recognition or for semantic segmentation, which are very challenging tasks, but which have applications in personal assistance or in self-driving cars. And uh, it, it's, it's very important to be able to, to create these adversarial examples because that's the first step in order to, in order to evaluate the robustness of an AI. So then we moved on working on defenses against these adversarial examples. We have also done uh, some work in this area, which have been recently published uh, with some colleagues here. And um, and another line of work is also this area of biases and fairness. So recently we have shown uh, in a study that uh, 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 the models, basically the deep learning models that you use to train to recognize images when you train them for a, on a popular benchmark data set, which is ImageNet, uh, they learn quite some biased decision-making process. And this is somehow unexpected because most of the time the data set is considered as balanced. But there are explanations for this. So we have, we have observed some interesting uh, biases, ranging from ra- racial biases, for example. Mm. And, and all this is described in the paper. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I've talked about adversarial examples in my newsletter, but I don't think we've really dug into it in the podcast, um, at least not in a lot of detail. So maybe let's start there. Uh, and for folks who aren't familiar with uh, that whole field, do you have some favorite examples of adversarial examples? Sure. So um, so imagine you have, a, you, you, you have a system that is supposed to, to tell you what is in a picture. So mm-hmm. if you present the system with a picture, it says, oh, this is a, this is a dog or this is a cat, etc." Right. So it is possible to inject to the picture that you're presenting to the image some very structured noise that is imperceptible to the human eye, but that will change the decision of the system. So you can have two seemingly identical pictures of dog, of the same dog, and for one of them, the system will say, this is a dog, and for the second one, the system will say, this is a cat, or this is a car, or, or, or any other thing. So this is 
kind of intriguing because we cons- these systems are very accurate normally, and we tend to to compare them to humans because they are very accurate. And when we measure their accuracy, we say, hey, usually we say, hey, look, the system is a, as accurate as a human. But on the mm-hmm. flip side, a human is very robust to these kind of perturbations. Like no matter how much perturbation you add to an example, if a human looks at two pictures that, that are similar, uh, she will be able to say that this is a this is a dog and this is a dog as well. But if the if the system can be tricked by these uh, slight modifications that are imperce- imperceptible to the human eyes, it means something. It says a lot about the, um, the the current understanding or the lack of understanding that we have about the behavior of these models, and and it makes it an interesting topic to study. So 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 this is this is basically the the a high level explanation of adversarial examples. By the way, I gave an example uh, speaking about topics on image uh, speaking about images, uh, image mm-hmm. image recognition, but and I think that's what most of us associate with adversarial examples. Exactly. We've, we've seen a bunch of these. Yeah. Um, but it's not just images. Absolutely. So we have shown in a recent paper uh, a generic method called Houdini that allows you to generate adversarial examples, not only for images, but also for speech recognition tasks where you can add some noise in an audio file uh, such that humans cannot distinguish the two audio files, but a, a speech recognition system will be completely, uh, will completely, uh, will interpret the two audio files in a completely different way. So it, it's a very broad uh, topic. Oh, wow. So you know, the example that comes to mind for me is if you can create an audio file that uh, says one thing, but uh, interprets the system as uh, saying, OK, Google, you could really mess with people's, uh, you know, their virtual assistants and things like that that they've got around their home. Sure. That, that's that's one, uh, one, 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 one scenario you could imagine, definitely. That's one scenario you could imagine. To what extent are... The current adversarial examples that that work uh, in general, like to what extent is that model specific? Meaning, is the work that's happening around adversarial examples and defenses is it all uh, explicitly impact specific types of models? You know, deep neural networks or specific types of deep neural networks or specific architectures of networks, or it is is it? a broader phenomenon that can apply uh, more generally? So uh, I, I would say that this is a broad phenomenon that applies to different class of models, ranging from deep neural networks, of course. Uh, people talk about it because it's the most familiar family of functions right now, but it also mm-hmm. applies to support, support vector machines or to decision trees and all sorts of things. That mm-hmm. being said, the kind of model that you, that the specific type of model that you're, uh, that you're using can have properties that make it less robust to adversarial examples. This is true across the different family of models, but depending on the conditioning and the, and the nice, some nice properties that the model may have, uh, they may be more or less robust to adversarial examples. However, uh, for the defenses, there are defenses that exploit the nature of the model sometimes, but there are also some defenses that are agnostic to the type of model that you consider. For example, we recently proposed in a in a paper defenses against adversarial examples that are just based on uh, transformations of the input. Uh, 
in order to remove the noise that has been injected to the to the to the input. So this mm-hmm. is typically completely agnostic to the to the type of model that you consider. Mm, okay. When these adversarial examples, they you know they're maliciously created. What's the process generally for creating them? So the pre- the process for creating an adversarial example is actually the inverse process for training the model. So when you train the model, you show to the model an image of a dog, mm-hmm. and you measure how well the model recognizes that this is a law. This is a dog. And mm-hmm. you reinforce that decision if it is a positive one, and or you 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 kind of uh, encourage the model to change its decision if if the decision is not good, right? Okay. So when you create an adversarial example, you do the reverse process, and the way you do it is that we show a, an example of a dog to the model, and when the model says yes, this is a dog, then you you calculate from the from the model, the the right direction in which you need to move the example in the input space in order to change slowly the decision of the model, which means that you, you, the, you, you're based on the decision of the model in order to know how to trick it. So it's 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 the opposite way of training the model. So the 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 subtlety here is that. Changing the decision of the model does not require a big change in the input space. In fact, mm-hmm. at the, if you consider images at the pixel level, that change is always almost uh, imperceptible by a human eye. But it is surprisingly sufficient for uh, flipping the decision of a model. You know, there are there are technologies in the case of images and audio as well, where you can have like these uh, digital watermarks where you're doing similar things, right? You're, you're placing some kind of uh, watermark, I guess in that case, it's, it's not noise per se, but you're altering the image in a way that's imperceptible to the, you know, human observer, um, but has some meaning to the system. It's, I guess that I, I guess I'm just sharing that as kind of an example of it's, how it's that actually very process... related. It's it's really okay. it's it's very similar. It's not the same thing, but it's very similar mm-hmm. that you manage to put in the input some information that that makes the model behave in some way, but that is uh, basically imperceptible. And and you're you're definitely right, uh, pointing to the watermarks because it's very similar in spirit. Uh, and so there, uh, there are a bunch of f- folks that are researching these adversarial examples. What's the current research thrust? Is it trying to identify different ways of generating them, or have we all kind of is, is there you know only you know that general way that you describe to create them, and everyone is working on defense or what? So there are different rules for generating adversarial examples, but they basically exploit the same information, which is the gradient in mm-hmm. one way or another. It can be direct when you have access to the full information about the model, or it can be direct where you kind of train a substitute of a model and generate the gradient from it and transfer the adversarial example to another model. So there are a few different attacks that do exist, but for now I have to say that uh, attackers have an edge because it's much more difficult to fool a model than to protect 
uh, it from adversarial examples. However, in my opinion, adversarial examples are not just interesting from a security point of view. Of course, mm-hmm. this is very important because it's critical um, when you want to use these powerful and, and um, attractive deep learning models, for example, in certain types of applications. Mm-hmm. But another aspect of the adversarial example is that they they tell us something about the models that we love and that we use on a, on a daily basis. They say that there are things that we do not understand because these, uh, this behavior is sort of pathological. Uh, so they, they trigger interesting research questions beyond the security perspective, but on the very nature of these models and the learning algorithms that we use. And we have also mm-hmm. found with other colleagues that adversarial examples can be used for, for other purposes. And, and in our case, it was to exhibit biases that may that the model may have learned from the data, which, which was quite interesting to see. Uh, can you elaborate on that and what, what the implications are? When you have a model, so so basically machine learning models or you you design a parametric model, you take some data, you apply a learning rule, and you train the model from the data, right? Mm-hmm. So you can expect that if your model is trained to optimize for some criteria, it will behave very well if the learning algorithm is good, if you have sufficient data, if the the, the model that you have chosen is powerful enough that it will behave in a uh, in a, some expected way, right? Mm-hmm. But assuming your input data is you know follows a similar distribution, absolutely, that's the back uh, hypothesis. Uh, mm-hmm. Very good uh, observation. So the point here is that your model may have captured uh, some regularities that are present in the data but you may that but that you may not notice because when you test the model or when you evaluate it you're not using the right criteria that could show you the broad scope of everything your model have learned so okay. I, I can give you an example so we have okay. found that for example if you if you train if you take a let's say a popular models like ResNets, residual networks, which are very popular in computer vision, and you train them on ImageNet using all the you know, all the sophisticated learning algorithms, then you will mm-hmm. achieve some excellent uh, performance as far as accuracy is concerned. But when you look deeply into why the model predicts what it predicts, you can see some very funny things. So for example, we found out that uh, if, you, if you consider the class, the category basketball, Mm-hmm. So for some reason, the model tends to consider that if you show uh, an input with a black person to the model, it will predict that this is a picture whose corresponding category is basketball. And and this is no matter mm. whether it is about basketball or not, doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, and, and the reason is the model has picked up some biases in the data. So, so uh, that that suggests this actually, and and it's true also for different, different, uh, different sort of biases. It almost makes me think that like all models overfit. It's just some of them overfit too much, but you know the other ones are overfitting in in ways that you know might produce acceptable results um, until you know we're thrown a curveball and see something that we didn't expect. Absolutely. 
this is uh, this is a very good observation. So m many of the models, would, if they are not properly regularized, or if the loss function, the objective, the criteria that you're optimizing for, does not take into account these uh, these um, problems, uh, they may well learn um, different sort of biases from the data. And these biases are numerous and, and diverse, by the way. So I, I, I always um, put it this way. I, I, I think you are what you eat. And for <laughs> models, for the models, the data sets they're trained on right now are just junk food. So we should, <laughs> we should not expect them to behave differently if we don't endow the models with the ability to pick precisely the examples they should learn from and what they should learn and what they should not learn. Just the way we should we, we, we do it with the kids, for example. When a kid takes something and puts it, put it in her mouth, if it is something that, that, a, that a kid can eat, you, you probably can let her do. But if it is not, then you will stop her and say, hey, you cannot do this. And, and 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 as adults as well, sometimes we say, "Oh, I can eat this. I cannot eat that because there is there is a lot of fat here. There is not enough. Uh, there is a lot of sugar here, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So we should endow the models with the ability to do some self criticism and introspection to say, "I should learn from this data set. I should learn from this data point, or I should not learn from this data point, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So these are very Fascinating questions. I spend a lot of time uh, thinking and working on these days. Mm. So I want to drill down into the, that last point you made about uh, endowing the model with this ability to kind of discriminate between good and bad data. But before we do that, we kind of got to the bias um, by way of the adversarial examples. And I, I think you were making a connection there that I didn't fully catch. And I want to make sure that uh, if that is what you were trying to do, that we make that clear. Yeah, sure. So, so, the, so the, uh, the reason why adversarial examples can be interesting to, to exhibit the biases a model may have learned is actually very simple. So, uh, so w when you learn a classifier, basically what you're trying to do is to, to find a decision boundary, to draw a line that says that this side of the line, it's the cats, and the other side of the line, it's the dogs. This mm -hmm. is very simple, and you can visualize it very well if the model is linear. But if the model is nonlinear, it's much more challenging. And the way adversarial examples are, are built, it's by taking a point of a specific class and moving it, moving it slowly, but in a very straightforward way, to the other side of the decision boundary. Right. So not all examples are created equal. If, a mod, if an example is close to the decision boundary in the latent space, then you will not need to move it a lot in order to, to take it to the other side of the decision boundary. Mm -hmm. And if, a, if an example is far from the decision boundary, you will have a hard time taking it to the decision boundary, to the, to the other side of it, meaning that you will have to add a lot of noise, a significant amount of noise. But the examples that are close to the decision boundary are those examples for which the model have learned a representation that is not very robust when you consider the concept they should belong to. So mm. if you take a picture of a dog and, it's, you, and for which you can, you can flip the decision of the model very easily by adding very slightly 
a very small amount of noise. That means that Mm -hmm. the model is not very sure about what this is. And that is called a criticism. So this is a criticism for the model. It's something that the model barely knows what it is, but it's not very sure. But if you take a, a picture of a of a dog and you add a lot of noise to it and still you have a hard time flipping the decision of the model, then the model is pretty confident what this is, right? So, hmm. and, and that is what the model considers as being prototypical. So after learning from some data, you can take another data set, some test data set, and, and, and by using the adversary, the procedure for generating adversarial examples, you can see how much noise you should add to some data points in order to change the decision of the classifier and use that as a proxy of how prototypical an example is to the model. So the examples that are prototypical to the model, to what the model have learned about a, sp- a given concept will be hard to change their decision. But for, for the others, it will be easy to change their decision. And if you look at the prototypical example, they will tell you what, what the model has really learned, what it is very confident about. And that's, that's actually what we used and in order to discover what, what the model considered really as being pictures of basketball. And when we looked at it, it was all pictures of basketball, basically with just black persons inside and never white persons. And when we mm-hmm. looked at pictures of, uh, that are criticisms, which is you know some pictures that the model classifies pretty well, but it's not very sure about it, it's at the edge of its knowledge, um, then it's, very, it's pictures that are mostly populated with, uh, with, uh, with white, white persons. And all this is, um, is, uh, is, is basically validated uh, on different categories and different classes. Similarly, we found that when the model, uh, what the model considers as being prototypical of an image belonging to the category ping pong is basically a, a, a picture with an Asian in it. So, so, so after, when people see these kind of things, they will say, hey, the model is, is racist. In fact, a model cannot be racist because it's not intelligent. The models that we build are accurate, but they are not intelligent. And whatever they learn, whatever, they, whatever behavior they exhibit, they just learned it from the data they were trained on. So somehow these models are the mirror of what we are. So they, they just tell us something about the process we use to collect the data to train the model, and sometimes they even tell us something about those who collected that data and those who built the models. So, so I will take this occasion to emphasize on, on something that is very important regarding diversity uh, in, in our community. It's actually critical, and not just because it's fashionable or, it, or because it sounds cool. It's critical that as a community, we become more open and more diverse because the models that we build and the data sets these models learn from, if we want to have a broad impact at the global level worldwide and build technology that is representative of the human beings on this planet and not just a specific population which tends to be Westerns and North Americans, um, it's important that we become more open and more diverse so that everybody has the tools and, and uh, the, the techniques to build the technology to solve its own problems. Well, everyone has the tools and techniques, but also those 
organizations that are building, you know, these types of systems, you know, have a more natural inclination to structure their data sets, for example, uh, so that they're more robust? Uh, actually, I'm not even sure that everybody has the tools and techniques because let, let's say, uh, let, let's consider the machine learning community, for example. Mm-hmm. So this community every year organizes conferences, which the two of the most important ones being NIPS and ICML. And uh, they are basically every year organized in a Western country, either in Europe or in the US, with some exceptions. ICML has been organized previously in, uh, in China, uh, for example, and last year in Australia, which I consider being an, uh, um, a Western country as well. Uh, so and it is very difficult for people from other parts of the world to get into, this, into the community just because the, the, the places where these gatherings happen are not easily accessible to them. And that's one thing. Right. That's one thing. And w- when you when you are when you are European or American, you may not see these things because you have the right passport that allows you to go everywhere. But when you are not, then then you can see this. You know, I, I just give you an example. This year, I had two papers uh, accepted for publication at ICML. It was in Australia. I could not go there because they could not. They did not grant me a visa. Oh wow! For for many people, this is. They, they don't even believe it when you say it, but it's true. And it's just like the random, the normal, um, the routine for, for many people, for many people. So, so that, that's one thing. And, and the second thing is that uh, even for those who manage to attend these conferences, if they're not established in a lab that is in one of these countries, uh, it can be very difficult to do some, some research, some, you know, interesting and, and, and important research because most of what we do right now requires huge amount of computational resources which are not available uh, in, in, in many countries. Uh, so w- we need to, to do something. So, you know, th- there are various initiatives uh, uh, to, to, to make the community more open and more inclusive, uh, some of which I can name are the Women in Machine Learning, and also the Black in AI, uh, which we organized this year. Uh, we also have this initiative called Data Science Africa, which we organize every year. Uh, it's a summer school where we teach machine learning to local students, which has been very popular so far. So so there are initiatives, but I, I think we need much more. Uh, I, I'll I, also throw in a shout out to the Deep Learning in Daba, which happened in South Africa for the first time last year, yes. and uh, they're planning a, a follow on this year as well. Yes, yes, that that also is an uh, is an interesting uh, initiative that was very helpful in this direction as well. Interesting. So, and, and I guess in that way, all of the uh, you know, I think that 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 kind of ties together all of the various things that you work on that may seem like separate and distinct uh, Actually, areas are, of research. They're not really separate. They, they fit in a, what I think as a person I should be doing. So I, I'm committed to build mm-hmm. an axiological artificial intelligence. And by axiological, I mean an, an artificial intelligence that is aligned with the value of the society in which it operates. Mm. And and to be aligned with the value of the society in which you operate means that you are aware of the biases that you should avoid 
but also you are aware of the utility that you can have, the problems that you may be you may solve, and also the guarantee some level of safety and security. So, so that's that's the general scope of uh, what keeps me busy right now. Mm. Which brings us back uh, to that previous comment that I kind of put a bookmarker on, and that uh, was kind of the distinction you made between. Uh, us as the creators of the AI being aware of bias in data sets uh, and uh, factors like that uh, versus the models themselves being aware of these things and evolving through training or design or other things to, I guess the way you put it was be selective about the data they consume. Can you elaborate on, on that and the kind of work you're seeing happen there? So, uh, so what I said is that you are what you eat, and the data right. the models are trained on right now is basically junk food. So, uh, what I meant is that we do not put a lot of effort into ourselves first, looking into this data and uh, seeing what the model what what should be there and what should not be there. So, for example, if you collect the data that that serves to train a model. Uh, which will be used worldwide, then you make sure that that data is representative of the population right. worldwide. That, that's, that's, that's the basic first step to do. I get that part. I thought you also, yeah. and maybe this is where you're getting with the second step, I thought you were also suggesting that you're also exploring ways to teach the model yes. to know yes. that, uh, that's, that, these things. That's where I'm coming. So that's, okay. So the first part is the data part itself. Actually, right. there is the degree zero, which which even comes from uh, before the the data part. The the mm-hmm. zero the zero step step zero is to make sure that the people who work on the data and on the models are as diverse as possible, because only that way they will be able to notice these biases. And of course, the the first step after that is to make sure that the data itself uh, is. Uh, representative of the population, but then after that, uh, which which a, a more te- a little bit more technical question is the models should be endowed with the ability to select what they should learn from and what they should not learn from, and what what kind of features they should be invariant of, and 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 this is a uh, this is a less explored. Uh, territory, because there is definitely some work in the area of making the models invariant to gender or invariant to race, etc. But I think we should, we should, in order to design models that are intelligent but that are free from the biases, we should just take inspiration from ourselves. You know, we, we do, we humans do some um, do introspection. Basically, we. When, when we see a book and we read the book, we don't believe everything in the book, right? We say, oh, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. We criticize many of the things, and that's also part of learning. But right now, that learning is completely positively supervised, which means that when you show, uh, when you show an example to a model, the, the label it is associated with is exactly what you want to learn from. So we should, we should endow the model to be able to, to be able to criticize the data it is learning from and to select what it should learn from according to some criteria and what it should not learn from 
according to other criteria. And and to me, this is a an excited an exciting direction, research direction, which which has not been much explored. Uh, I have to say, but but it's it's something that we should work more on. Are there any examples of of this, even very simple ones that have been explored in the research? So uh, recently, I published a paper with a colleague of mine where we tried to do something like this. We try to, uh, okay. we try, but but for a model that is already learned, we we try to design a method that allows uh, um, an operator to take the model and apply the algorithm to in order to in order to to exhibit the biases of, of that that the, the biases that have been learned by the model, but then one could one could imagine that this uh, algorithm is applied recursively to the model while the model is being trained, and that's where it gets interesting. Almost um, like a GAN it, type of training. Yeah, approach. something like that. Something like that. Not 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 necessarily a GAN because in this way is. Um, uh, I, I don't see it really as being invariant to something, but 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 really as being able to criticize uh, itself and also to 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 decide which data it should learn from and which which one it should not learn from. So more in an active learning fashion, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, okay. So 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 it's it's um it's an interesting uh, and challenging research direction. I'm very excited about. What were the results of that uh, that paper? How far did you get with it? So what we saw is uh, some of the results that I mentioned before. So we saw that if you take a state-of-the-art computer vision model, uh, image classification model, and train it on the most standard data, you will see stuff appearing that are not expected. For example, you will see that the model considers, if you, basically, if you show it a picture of Barack Obama, it will classify it as basketball. And we have we have real examples like that in the paper. And if you show it a picture okay. of the president of China, it would classify it as ping pong. And uh, and 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 this can be shocking, but it's just it's just uh, some biases that are present in the data. In fact, there is something very interesting that we show uh, that actually we found out, which is um, we, we we thought that this was due to. The imbalance in the in the class basketball, for example, which we thought that mm-hmm. the, the class basketball only contained pictures with mostly black people. But when we, I've assumed this whole time that that's what you're uh, that that was what you were saying. Actually, that's not what happened. So really, yeah. So we 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 we, we computed the statistics, and what we found out is that the class basketball basically contains as many pictures with white people as pictures with black people. So if you take a picture, the probability that there is white people is roughly the same as a, as a, as the probability that you see a black person in it. But what happened actually is that if maybe you, black people are much, you know, less, much more underrepresented in your data center. So they're more uniquely associated. Absolutely. With the absolutely. So it's, this mm. is, it's a mutual information problem. So if you look at the, if you look at just the first order uh, observations, then you may not really right. see what's happening. But if you look at the problem more broadly, then you see that that it's exactly what you what you what you said. So that uh, even in the data set, black people are more uniquely associated with the class basketball, which is a bit problematic because uh, mm-hmm. again, it says something about how the data set was collected. And I'm sure that the people who collected the data set they did put at the time a lot of care to make. Uh, you know everything uh, as correct as possible, but still you can see the type of uh, uh, biases that can arise uh, from the data mm-hmm. set. Yeah. 
And so, so we're talking about algorithms that can learn to identify these, uh, these issues. And you mentioned the ping pong and basketball examples in that research, did your algorithm, you know, were these kind of handpicked examples or did your supervisory algorithm find these examples within the first model? Yeah. It's 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 really not handpicked. Actually, I gave them I gave these examples because it's racial biases and people know what it means. Mm. But uh, but we found other things. For example, when for the class traffic light, we found out that the model, whenever there is in an image a blue sky with a bar, you know, some mm-hmm. some black bar in it, the the, mm-hmm. the model will always predict traffic light just because doesn't matter whether there is traffic light or not just because in most pictures with traffic light you see the this you know this metal this iron bar with in a blue right. sky or something so it's it's really you know it's really a lot of different biases but i just i just give these two ex- as examples because people can relate with it and know exactly what that means hmm. can you envision like or or at least i'm envisioning as you're describing this maybe um, some kind of meta annotation process where, you know, you, you initially annotate your data, but then you run and you train a model and then you kind of apply this algorithm to the model and it shows you all of these biases. And then you have this meta annotation step where folks are identifying whether these biases are valid or something like that and using that to retrain your model. Do you envision something like that? Actually, I will take it one step further. I will, okay. I will remove even the human in the second loop. If, th- okay. if things are done, if things are done properly, uh, ideally, what I would like to see is that a model learns from the data in an initial step and itself criticizes itself uh, and says, "I should not have learned this and that," and then goes in a second round of learning and uh, and uh, be more careful what it learns from which data point, etc., and iteratively produces a final model that is uh, at least. Um, less biased because you never can have a model that is completely free from all biases. That's just not possible. Um, but you can mitigate it. And, and, mm-hmm. and to, to, in my opinion, that's something that we definitely can do. Uh, this question may be getting further ahead of, you know, where you are with this research, but, you know, given, given this example, any of these examples really, but this example of the blue sky and the bar and the, the traffic light, the way we train these examples or these models rather, uh, you know, what, what do you envision the mechanism being inside that training loop that allows the model to even know, you know, what the thing is that it's supposed to be uh, paying attention to? So there are two things here. The first is the the, um, the learning rule that we're using. So currently, most of these models are trained in a completely supervised way. So we say, hey, this mm-hmm. is an image of a traffic light, and then the model kind of learned to figure out these things. Uh, so I think that we should reduce the supervision. Mm-hmm. That's that's one, one thing. And reducing the supervision, having a learning algorithm that needs less supervision will make definitely the algorithm more robust because it will have access to much more data which is unsupervised and it will the labeling process itself is very noisy in general so the the model may be exposed to less noise uh, and it 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 may less overfit so if the model is able to to leverage uh, more of the unsupervised data it, it may end up uh, uh, 
less overfitting. So that's one thing. The second thing is that the objective functions that the model is optimizing should be designed in a way that makes the model avoid uh, uh, learning some biases. And that's that's where the that, that's also one change that needs to happen in the way we supervise the model. So 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 I, I just give you an example. So right now the way we train the if you take a any state of the art image net model, it was trained uh, in pair in examples that have pictures and label. And the and the model has no idea how the labels are related to each other. It it ends up somehow figuring it out. But, and I should not even say figuring it out, but it, it ended up, you know, producing representations. Yes, it. Mm-hmm. representations where cats are close to dogs, etc. But it's not really the case. So your model can make completely stupid mistakes. So if if a cat is misclassified as a dog, it's it's a wrong decision, but it's still fine because semantically we know that they are closer uh, to each other than a cat being misclassified as a plane, for example. Uh, and 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 you know. So far, we have not managed to train the models to to really take into account this decision in order to improve their accuracy and the type of errors they take. So there are a lot of attempts in the literature, but uh, in my opinion, it has not been very convincing. So there is a lot of um, uh, things to explore in these directions. Yeah, it's it. It sounds like uh, there's definitely a lot to explore, and uh, furthermore, these you know the kind of di- the direction that you're proposing is a fairly is dramatic too strong. You know, a dramatic shift from kind of the way we train these models today. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point, um, we just need to to change paradigms, and that's that's how that's how uh, research works. I'm not claiming that what I'm saying is the right thing to do. I mean, it's probably not. But I see that I observe that we are reaching the limits of most of the, the the learning algorithms and the models that we are currently using can offer. And probably what will take us to the next level is not in the box in which we are thinking right now. So we should probably take a step back and 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 look at the 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 very principles of the learning algorithms that we're using and think them in a way that can take us to the next level. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that sounds like a good place to wrap up. Mustafa, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with us. Any uh, final words that you'd like to add? So thank you very much for inviting me. It has been a, a pleasure to discuss with you. I just would like to mention a last thing, which is there is a lot of uh, research currently in the area of bias and fairness and and, and all of these very uh, interesting and fascinating topics. But there is also one thing that, in my opinion, is a bit overlooked in the community, which is fairness and bias is not only in the models that we design or the data sets the models learn from. It starts with the problems that we consider. Mm. If we start by considering problems that are important for a specific population in the world and just focus on solving these type of problems, the end result is the data sets that we'll be using and the models that we'll be, uh, that we'll be learning from these data sets will obviously be biased. So I think as a community, we should also open ourselves to consider problems that are of interest at the global level. 
and I will just give you an example to conclude. Um, we are uh, there. There is definitely it's definitely an exciting direction. All the work happening in self-driving cars, etc., uh, and a lot of resources is being poured into this, and it's important for the for humanity in general, I think. But right now, this is important for a very, very tiny percentage of the population of this planet. And mm. there are challenging challenges out there where, as a community, we could have a huge impact, but we are still overlooking and we should open ourselves to that. And that I, I just would like to, to conclude by mentioning this. But thank you very much for inviting me to this um, podcast. I, I was very happy to discuss with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Remember, we want to hear from you on AI in the home and in our personal lives. Head on over to twimmelai.com slash my AI to share your thoughts. For more information on Mustafa or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelai.com slash talk slash 108. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.